In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. When I did my THM, my Master of Theology in New Testament, I chose the program that I did for this reason, one of, the, one of these reasons, uh, or this is one of the reasons. At the end of it, there was a comprehensive exam. So you would have to stand before, mine, mine ended up being five or six professors who are going to just hammer you with questions on classes that you've taken. They might ask you to translate something on the fly. They might push back on some of the research that you did, but they're going to bring it, right? That's their job. And as soon as that date got put on the calendar, I just went into like preparation mode. Like every morning I'm up at 5, 5.30, flashcards, reading notes, reading through commentaries, reading my Bible, reading my research, looking for holes that they might poke in, and, and for like months preparing for this preparation, for this trial, for this test. And I wonder when you've had an opportunity for something like that, when you've had a, a big presentation or maybe an important interview or some important conversation or thing that you have to do, um, have you taken the opportunity to prepare for it, right? You, you, you know that it's coming, and so you know you need to prepare for it. But what if you didn't, like I was imagining, what if they didn't tell me when that test was going to be? And after I turned in all my research, they were like, okay, one day we're just going to call you. And for three hours, we're going to ask you questions what do you think, like, what would you have done in that sort of situation? I think our hearts tend to go one of two ways. Either, either they go, well, it's probably not going to happen today, so let me just play some video games and enjoy myself and do whatever I want. Or you go the other way, and you get really serious and you say, because I don't know when, I need to be all the more careful and committed and intentional about how I'm using my time. I wonder if you had a situation like that. I think that's a good analogy for opening up this conversation that we have from this passage in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 18, because this is the big idea that Peter has for the church that he's writing to. Don't waste the Lord's patience. Don't waste the Lord's patience. You have time. Until the Lord comes again, you have time to be fruitful for his kingdom, to turn and repent, to do many, many things. So don't waste this time that you have. So let's look at this together. First of all, he wants us to know that this apparent slowness, the delay of Jesus' coming again, is not actually slowness on God's part, but patience. You see that in verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you. He, the, that sense of like, oh, when is the Lord Jesus come, come, going to come back? And that sense that, oh man, it's been 2,000 years. I mean, for them, it's only been like 30 years, and they're already complaining about it seems so long, it seems so slow. Well, why does he have to, to write this letter, and why does he have to bring up this topic of God's apparent slowness? Because he's told us earlier in the letter that there's some false teachers who've come into the church, and what they've been teaching, apparently, though they've been claiming to be Christians, and they've even been uh, feasting with the, the church there, they've been teaching, apparently, that the Lord Jesus isn't coming again, that uh, this world is all that there is, that, that the, the new heavens and the new earth is like now. Like, that's what we're living in is the new heavens and the new earth. And if the Lord Jesus isn't coming, that means there's no judgment at the end of history. And that means it doesn't really matter how you live right now, does it? So these false teachers have been coming in and telling these Christians these things. And even some of these Christians have been getting sucked into that reality. They've been falling into this way of life that Peter calls sensuality. That's a... Um, an adjective that he usually um, connects with sexual sin in the New Testament. He, they're also um, prone to greed, chapter 2, verse 3, and even blasphemy. 
denying, he says, even their master who redeemed them through his precious blood. These false teachers have come into the church and they begin to, to get people to believe that the Lord Jesus isn't coming again. After all, it's already been 30 years, right? The Lord Jesus isn't coming again, they say, they claim, and therefore it doesn't matter how you live, you know? Um, yeah, worship, let's worship together on the Lord's Day. Let's share in the Lord's Supper. But, you know, the, the way you live the rest of the week, it really doesn't matter according to the false teachers. Now, it's worth noticing that um, most false teachers in our day and age do the exact same thing. They collapse the now of the kingdom begun and the not yet of the kingdom still coming. They collapse those into one thing, and they tell you things like God wants you to be happy, wealthy, healthy, and wise more than anything. They, they become charismaniacs, Right? Uh, they become the liberal theologian who says it's all about building the kingdom through our efforts, and that's how we're going to build a utopia in the world, through politics and these sorts of things. All of those are just similar. They're just another iteration of the same false teaching that has come into the church. And so Peter wants to write, correct, challenge, and redirect God's people to the right way of thinking and living. It's also worth pointing out that actually if you know the catechism of the church, like the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed, then that pretty much rules out 99% of false teaching because it talks about asking for God's kingdom to come because it's not yet here. It talks about we need forgiveness and we need to forgive other people. And it, the creed tells us that the Lord Jesus is coming again. So just interesting that the, the, the heart of the faith actually rules out the majority of the errors on the, on the margins. So Peter writes and he wants to, to get them back to the heart, back in the center, He wants to remind these Christians that the Lord is returning. He says it over and over again in this this passage, in this chapter, in chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 7, verse 10, verse 12. He keeps talking about the Lord Jesus coming again. And he wants to give an apology uh, in the sense of a defense for this apparent slowness. So he says in verse 8 that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. What he's pointing us to, first of all, he's alluding to Psalm 90, verse 4, which we sometimes sing as, O God, our help in ages past. Psalm 90, verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. In verse 2, it says, From everlasting to everlasting you are God. God's eternal. You can't, you can't even apply the idea of slowness to God. It doesn't even make sense because God's not in time. He's eternal and outside of time. He's not like us, bound by this forward movement of time and space. God is outside of and beyond and eternal. He's not bound by the things that that we assume he's bound by, and therefore he can't be in any sense slow. It doesn't make sense to say that he's slow. You know, imagine this scenario. Imagine you're watching, people still watch movies on DVDs? Uh, Imagine you're watching a movie on DVD or you're streaming, you're watching your favorite YouTube channel. Okay, either way. You have now, with, with that, you have the ability to fast forward and rewind and go, go forward and go back and like experience, you could experience the movie or the thing you're watching all out of order, right? Well, God could do that, but God can do that with like every movie and every YouTube video, and also he's the one that created all of them, and also he experiences all of that at the same time, whatever time means for God, right? God is not slow. That's, that's nonsense. That's like a square circle. It just doesn't make sense. His return is not determined by the passage of time, but the passage of time is determined by his eternal plan. God is not waiting in in the sense that we wait. God has ordained the end of history 
And now he has given us this gift of this time in between the apparent slowness of 30 years for them or 30-something years and 2,000 for us. But as Peter reckons, us, reckons it and reminds us, we've only been waiting two days, guys. God is eternal. He's above and beyond and bigger than all of it. And he's given us this gift of this apparent slowness because of his patience. God's patience shows us that he wants people to be forgiven. He wants people to be restored back to him. In verse 9, we read, uh, God is not slow, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason God is, quote unquote, delaying is so that as many as possible might come to faith in Christ. And obviously that means we have to share our faith and live out our faith before the watching eyes of the world so that as many as possible, that, so that we don't waste this time, this patience that God has ordained for us. We don't want to waste that. And it's not a, it's not a all shall reach repentance in the sense of all without exception because he's, he's already said that the false teachers are going to be judged. And he warns these Christians that if you keep throwing your lot in with the false teacher, you're going you're to receive that same judgment, the same perishing in verse 7. There is a, a real danger, but God has given us time to, to reorient ourselves, to repent. You know, one of my professors used to use um, GPS as an example of repentance, right? Like when you, when you make a wrong turn, what does your GPS do? It re, recal, right? It's recalculating the route. It says at the next place, make a U-turn, right? And that's what repentance is. Oh, I've made a wrong turn. Let me get back on the track. I've made another wrong turn. Let me get back on the track. Let me turn from my sin and my bitterness and my brokenness and return to God and in Christ. Let me, let me return to him. I was, a couple years ago, I got really into Sherlock Holmes. I was really nerding out on um, Conan Doyle's um, fiction. And uh, there's a great story called The Blue Carbuncle. And it's about, um, the beginning of the story is like all these people who are um, like freaking out about a specific goose. Like there's one specific goose that everyone's trying to find or buy or discover who bought it and that sort of thing. And it turns out it's because there's this huge blue gem that someone fed to the goose and now it's down in the crop of the goose, and once the goose was killed and it got sold off, now everybody's trying to find it because they want the gym. And I don't want to ruin the story, but it's been out for like 150 years. So, um, <laughs> so, so the, um, Holmes untangles the mystery, right, and discovers what's going on, and, and it turns out that there was a young man and a young woman who fell in love, and they wanted to run away together, and so they were going to steal this jewel so that they could run away together. But the young man, when, when Holmes confronts him, the young man is so contrite and so um, terrified that, that he might have to go to jail that Holmes thinks he's, he's never going to do anything again. And so Holmes gives him the space to actually return the jewel and run away. He gives them, he kind of gives them the space to make amends, right? There's kind of an analogy there. God has given us the space to turn to him, to reorient ourselves to him, to uh, amend what is broken in our, in our lives with his help. He's given us patience, and so he calls us not. Peter says, don't waste it. We need to repent. Everybody needs to repent, and not just people outside of the church, but people inside of the church, right? This is written to Christians who need to repent, just like us. In your heart, just like in my heart, there are things daily that you discover that your, your heart is so tied to this, uh, this experience or this reality or this person or this um, this dream or this goal, your heart is so tied to that that there's a little part of you that says, yeah, I know I have Jesus, but I really won't be content unless I have 
blank. And this, we have the time, brothers and sisters, to turn from that and to return to Christ. Martin Luther, I, I quote this all the time, Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. Every day is an opportunity to turn and return to God. His return is imminent. He's, he's, he's not bound by time, but he's coming again, and we have this opportunity. And we should repent because when the Lord comes, all of the old will be destroyed. It will be burned up, he says, and the new heavens and new earth will be revealed. If you were looking at your Bible, look at verses 10 through 13. Um, if, when, you were, when we were reading that, you might have noticed just that very strong language three times it said that the, the, the cosmos, the, the, everything is going to be dissolved. Four times he said it would be burned up or melted or that there would be a roar, like the roar of a fire, that this would be consumed by fire. And then two times in our section, he said it will perish or be destroyed. The old heavens and the old earth, this realm is passing away. And when it passes away, when the Lord Jesus comes and this cataclysmic end of all things comes, everything will be laid bare. Both all the, every way that you've been wronged and treated unfairly, unjustly, or abused that has never been brought to light, all that will be brought to light. And every, every little sin that you've ever covered up and every little work that you've claimed you did in Jesus' name, but you really did it in your name, will be revealed. All of the old will be burned away. I, I was reading um, one commentary, and they quoted from these astronomers who, in, in the, at least many of the models of the universe, there is actually an expected end of our universe, and they described it this way. He says, whereas at the beginning, these are astronomers writing, whereas at the beginning there appears to have been a, a regular and quiet, things appear to have been regular and quiet to a high degree, at the final state, things will be chaotic and violent. All the galaxies and stars and atoms will dissolve into nuclei and radiation. Then the nuclei will be dismembered into protons and neutrons. They, in turn, will be squeezed until the quarks confined within them are liberated into a huge cosmic soup of freely interacting quarks and leptons. Everything will be dissolved. All of the old will be dissolved. But it's not just a warning of judgment. It's a promise of new creation. Because in verse 13, he says, yeah, all that stuff is going to be burned up. It's all going to be judged. All the works will be laid bare before God. And then there will be revealed a new heaven and a new earth. Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 17 and 18, where God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that, in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. This is why so often New Testament writers describe the end as the birth pangs. Like, they make the analogy of a, a baby being born, right? There's this um, pain and exhaustion and even terror and danger. And on the other side of it, there is new life and beauty and love and goodness. God, when Jesus returns, God is going to judge all things and reveal the new heavens and the new earth, renew all things. And so Peter says, in the meantime, don't waste, you, you and I will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So let us stand there with integrity as people of God and let us look to and hope this new heaven and new earth that is coming. So how do we, how do we actually like live this out? 
a couple of things quickly. So Peter's said in multiple different ways, I think all throughout the letter really, when the Lord seems slow, take the opportunity to grow. When the Lord seems slow, take the opportunity to grow. Verse 15, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. This is a gift from God, this patience. And verse 17, take care that you aren't carried away by false teaching. Hold fast to, hold fast to Christ, hold fast to God, hold fast to the scriptures, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed. Hold fast to the faith and then grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 18, that beautiful ending to this letter. He's saying, again, don't waste the Lord's patience, but wait, wait. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, that is the new heavens and the new earth, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Since you are waiting for this new heavens and the new earth, are you waiting? And it doesn't, that word doesn't mean like chilling, waiting. It means like eagerly anticipating, looking for, and long, longing for. It's the same word that John's disciples use when they come to Jesus and they say, are you the Christ or shall we look for another? That word look is the word wait. Shall we wait? Should we long for? Should we, should we eagerly be clawing at the future, hoping he will come? That's the same word that's used here. It's also the word that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 12 when he tells the parable of the, the men staying up in the night waiting for their master to return. Those men are waiting for their master. So Peter wants us to be eagerly anticipating the coming of Christ, looking for and longing for, Paul says it in, Ro in Romans 8, groaning, the creation and our hearts are groaning for the revelation of the sons of God and the renewal of all things. We should be longing for this renewal. Now, it's hard to long for renewal when you live your life distracted and comfortable all the time, isn't it? But God is good to us, and sometimes life breaks through that, the mist of that. I remember when my son Gabriel um, was in uh, ketoacidosis, and we took him to the emergency room. They life-flighted him to uh, or the Children's Hospital of downtown, and I remember after a couple days, he was doing better, but then they were downloading all of the information of how to care for him now, and the sort of like, I don't know, this is dramatic, but over, to me, it felt like the grim, he, grim Reaper hanging over the room, kind of the, there's this ur, urgent thing that has to be managed all the time with type 1 diabetes, and I remember at one point just saying to my wife, I just want to go home, and not home like Fleming Island home, like new heavens, new earth, he will wipe away every tear from every eye, and there will be the tree of life for the healing of the nations, home, eagerly longing for that. And this season of Advent is an opportunity to turn down the distractions, to turn down the ways that we self-medicate with our distractions and with our material goods, and to, to lean into that, to eagerly long for his coming. So he says, wait, eagerly. But then he also says, be diligent. Be diligent in pursuing Christ-like character. Be diligent, he, the exact word he uses in 14, uh, to be found by him without spot or blemish. In his first letter, Peter said that the blood of Jesus Christ was like a lamb without spot or blemish, and that we have been redeemed and rescued by his death and resurrection. And now Peter's saying in this second letter, now live like that Christ who has rescued you. Live the way he would live. Look at your life when you hear... Uh, the, the uh, summary of the law, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself, you should reflect on that and go, Lord, am I doing that? 
And in the ways that I'm not, will you show me so that I can be forgiven and, and live my life the way Christ would have me? Repent, trust, ask, and then do something. Do something. Whatever, whatever the, the thing, I think we all have these things, whatever the thing God wants you to do and he's been telling you to do it for a long time and it's been ringing and rattling around in the back of your mind for a long time, do it. Be diligent that we not be found with any spot or blemish, but that by God's help, we live as much as we can like Christ. And then finally, and this is the end, um, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you in tune with your own heart? Do you know how, do you know those things which make your heart resonate like a tuning fork makes that resonation? Do you, do you, do you know the things that God has put in your life and given as gifts to the church that make you resonate with the grace of God? Maybe it's, maybe it's private prayer, maybe it's Bible reading, maybe it's gathered worship, maybe it's coming to the Lord's table. Could be a lot of things. God has given us a lot of means of grace. But take full advantage of those things. God has granted to us, Peter says, precious and great promises so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world and because of sinful desire. We have these great gifts that God has given us. And so let's take them to heart, take, uh, take the opportunity in Advent to do them. And then finally, the, the, the main thing I think Peter would remind us of, if we, if we said, well, Peter, how do I grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? He would say the scriptures. He's already said earlier that even though he stood on the mountain of transfiguration and saw the Lord Jesus revealed that we now, the church, have something more fully assured, more fully confirmed, namely the word of God, the word of the prophets, the holy scriptures. And then he says that Paul, right, that these false teachers, they twist Paul, just like they do the what? The other scriptures, which means what? Paul is part of the scriptures. So he's pointing us to the Bible as one of the key ways that God ministers to us, grace and knowledge, one of the ways that we fight against sin and we live this life where we're pursuing diligence before him. Let me, let me just challenge you with two very practical things. One, in the morning, when you wake up, before you touch your phone, open up your Bible. If you're like me, the first instinct, it's like reflexive now. You don't even think about it. Phone, boom. Before you touch your phone, pick up your Bible. Read your Bible. And or, before you come home at night and you flick on the game or you flick on the streaming or you flick on the whatever, pick up your Bible. Because... We don't want to waste this patience, right? We want to grow in the grace and knowledge of the, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand as we confess our faith using the words of the Nicene Creed.